0: all right good to see everybody can i have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of romans chapter three now tonight we find ourselves actually coming to the end of the first main section in romans we've been looking at this for a few months uh, it runs from chapter one verse 18 through chapter three verse 20 a section called condemnation uh, we're in the final verses so uh, the last 10 verses of Romans 3, Paul's presenting his closing arguments, really, in his case for the guilt of all human beings in the presence of Almighty God. Uh, As we have repeatedly said in this first section of the book, Paul was making his case that the whole world apart from Jesus Christ and his payment for their sins on Calvary's cross is condemned to spend eternity apart from God in hell. And now Paul calls, if you will, the final witness for the prosecution of the stand, God himself. And in verses 10 to 18, they amount to a 14-count indictment of the human race by God right out of his mouth, right out of his word. And So that brings us to the climax of this section where Paul looks at the word of God as the final and greatest testimony against mankind. God's word is the ultimate authority. Uh, It's the only real authority in this world. Because God made this world, God ordained this world, and his word upholds this world. So his word is everything. Mankind doesn't often recognize that or like to acknowledge it, but God's word is absolute truth, and Paul is using it to show that what God has said about the human race apart from Christ. said, As I said a moment ago, it's a 14-count indictment, which begins with, As it is written, 14 counts comes right out of the word of God. As it is written, Paul starts out, you know, laying it out right there. Now, guys, before we get into this entire section, verses 10 to 18, let me read again the first few verses and use them to review a little bit of what we brought up last week. We kind of ran out of time, and I just want to revisit some of this and uh, give you some new stuff, and then also use this then as an introduction to uh, tonight's study so let's read romans 3 verses 10 to 12 where paul said as it is written there is none righteous no not one there is none who understands there is none who seeks after god they have all turned aside they have together become unprofitable there is none who does good no not one it's hard for a lot of people to come to terms with this truth especially moral and or religious people who typically have a high view of themselves and their own personal goodness. And so it's hard for them to accept what God is saying about them that, look, they're not good people on their way to heaven. They are fallen sinners destined for hell, no matter how moral or religious they claim they are. In fact, this section in Romans is the most thorough and complete presentation on the depravity of man that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. And of course, as we said last week, it immediately as, you, as we read, I think we read verses 10 to 18 last time, but you get the idea, uh, as you read those verses, it immediately begs the question, how can God love me if I'm this bad? Well, again, we're reviewing it a little bit from last week, but it's important to understand. That God doesn't love us because, you know, we're good and lovable. God loves us because that's his nature. That's his nature. In other words, he doesn't love us because of who we are. He loves us because of who he is. And if you don't nail that down, if you let the devil tell you that God only loves you when you're good, quote-unquote, whatever that means, he's got you up against the ropes. And he's going to pound the life out of you, spiritually speaking. And yet guys in the last I don't know 50 or 60 years a very serious error has infiltrated the church and is doing incredible damage to our concept of our fallen selves a teaching that rather than tearing down our opinion of ourselves for all the years Christianity has been around it's always been about tearing down man's self-righteous opinion of himself so that We would humble ourselves before God, repent of our sins, that he might lift us up by saving us, adopting us into his family and kingdom, so on. It was all hinged on us understanding who we really are. And God said, look, the person who has a uh, a humble and contrite spirit, I will never turn my ears away from them. The proud, the arrogant, they're on their own. So for all the years that Christianity has been around, the church has taught that we are sinners saved by grace. We deserve nothing from God. Everything is a gift of his grace, right? And we used to to sing songs. The church was filled with hymns that, uh, that tore down our self-image and built us up in Christ's image and so on. Amazing hymns. But that has changed for I think most of the churches in America who now seek to build up people's opinions of themselves. It all started with an atheist, and maybe he wasn't the first, but he's the one who really brought it into the church. It all started with an atheist psychoanalyst named Eric Fromm back in the 1940s who twisted Jesus' words in Matthew 22, verse 39, where he said to his people, "Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And Fromm to justify his humanistic view of self-love, making it biblical, uh, he said that, well, you know, Jesus actually meant when he said that, that you can't really love others until you first learn to love yourself. That's how he interpreted it. And for some reason, it caught on. And he went on to say, self-love, therefore, is the greatest love of all. Jesus said it. No, he didn't. No, he didn't say that at all. He didn't say, learn to love yourself before you can love others. He said, love others as you already love yourself. Guys, the devil has infiltrated the church with this kind of thinking and corrupted it. Corrupted it into embracing the demonic philosophy of self-love. Now, we talked about this last week. Bear with me. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. For the sake of the new folks who are watching online or here tonight, who weren't here last week, the devil has infiltrated the church with this kind of thinking and instead of doing corrupted the church into embracing the demonic philosophy of self-love, which in turn has led to the rise of the self-esteem movement that has captured the thinking and teaching of so many Christian leaders. This teaching that we all must learn to love ourselves and esteem ourselves as Christians is perverting our concept of the cross of Christ and why Jesus died for us. Did he die for us because we're sinners and he's just a God of infinite love? Or were we worth it? Were we worthy? And so on. This idea that he died for worthy people instead of abject sinners um, is doing tremendous damage in people's concepts of their relationship with God. We talked about Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 47. You can read those on your own. And we said when we explored that passage a little bit that our love and appreciation for God is directly proportionate to how little or how much we love and esteem ourselves. The more we love and esteem ourselves, the less we're going to love and esteem all that God's done for us, and vice versa. So the whole teaching of self-esteem goes against everything the New Testament tells us that we are to do with self as Christians. And we just talked a little bit about that last week. The word esteem means, and I'm quoting the dictionary, to regard highly, to value greatly, to have a high opinion of. Therefore, self-esteem would then be, to regard self highly, to value self greatly, to have a high opinion of your self. You know, self-esteem used to be called pride, and stands exactly opposite to what the Bible says we as Christians are to do with self. The Bible tells us that we are to deny ourselves, crucify self, that we are not to have a high opinion of ourselves. In fact, we are to esteem others better than ourselves. Guys, for the last 350 years, the church has sung John Newton's classic hymn, Amazing Grace, which begins with the words, you all know it, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. A lot of churches won't sing that song anymore. In fact, the church seems to be singing a new song today, Amazing Me, how sweet I am, that caused God to save a valuable, lovable, and worthy person such as me. That seems to be the sentiment in a lot of churches and with a lot of Christians. Spurgeon said it well. He said, and I quote, Jesus did not come to save us because we were worth saving, but because we were utterly worthless, ruined, and undone, nor out of any reason that was in us, but solely and only because of reasons which he took from the depths of his own divine love. In due time, he died for those whom he describes as ungodly, applying to them as hopeless an adjective as he could end quote tozer and you're going to go back to some of these great men of god because you know what nowadays they're far and few between there's still some great men of god women of god out there today but not like there used to be tozer was one of those great men of god and he likewise wrote until we believe that we are as bad as god says we are We can never believe that he will do for us what he says he will do. Right here is where popular religion breaks down, end quote. And yet, guys, many professing Christians have the exact opposite view of all this. Consider the following from Robert Schuller, who is not with us anymore, but at one time he was the pastor of the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California, gigantic Crystal Cathedral. Listen to what he wrote in his book, and chew on this title for a second, Self-Esteem, the New Reformation. Here's what he said. I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise. Nothing has been worse in torpedoing or evangelizing the lost, he said. Attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. Shame on us. He said that has been so counterproductive to getting people to come to Christ. Telling them they're sinners? What is that all about? (laughs) To be born again. Now he's going to redefine what it means to be born again. To be born again, we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image. Self-esteem, the new reformation. We must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image, from inferiority to self-esteem. If Christianity is to succeed, it must cease to be a negative religion and must become positive. The classical error of historical Christianity is that we have never started with the value of the person. Rather, we have started from the unworthiness of the sinner. He said the death of Christ on the cross is God's price tag on the human soul. It means we really are somebodies, unquote. In my Bible, it doesn't say that Jesus died for somebody's. It says he died for sinners. Nobodies. In that book, Schuller tells us exactly what he means when he said that the cross was God's price tag on the worth of human beings. He said, you only pay what something is worth. If a car is worth $500, you don't pay 5000 for it. Therefore, the fact that God was willing to pay for our salvation with the blood of his son means we are really worth a lot. We are really something. We are really somebodies. And I could just see the thumbs under the suspenders <laughs> as I brag on myself. Yet he wasn't finished. I'll give you one more. I can only handle one more. <laughs> this one blows my mind. I, it's amazing. Here's what he said. Jesus knew his worth. His success fed his self-esteem. He suffered the cross to sanctify his self-esteem. And he bore the cross to sanctify your self-esteem. The cross sanctifies the ego trip, end quote. The words, get thee behind me, Satan, come to mind. You know, William Law wrote two centuries ago, He said, Men are dead to God because they are living to self. Self love, self esteem, and self seeking are the essence of the life of pride. And the devil, the father of pride, is never absent from these passions, nor without an influence in them. Without a death to self, there is no escape from Satan's power over us. And yet, Tozer said, Self is one of the toughest plants that grows in the garden of life. In fact, It's indestructible by any human means. Just when we are sure it is dead, it turns up somewhere else as robust as ever to trouble our peace and poison the fruit of our lives. Guys, self has always been the problem. Self has always been the poison in our lives, in our walk. And yet in these last days, Satan has pulled off a major coup. He's gotten the church to buy into the idea that we shouldn't crucify self, we should feed it and build it up. And men and women of God have bought into that. They ought to know better. You're encouraging people to build up self, you're encouraging them to destroy their walk and their witness and their families and their marriages. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy the devil has. Guys, at the heart of all, men, all of men's problems is not low self-esteem. It's high self-esteem, otherwise known as pride. It manifests itself as selfishness, self-centeredness, in the idea that we know better than God what's best for our lives. So now we have six billion or so little gods running around trying to control everything. Instead of bowing the need to the one and only true God. With all this tea, it's not just America or throughout the world. This is in fact mostly the western world and the result has been sin and suffering as we see our world is being destroyed not from low self-worth but from self-love and self-worship run amok guys the bible says clearly that you and i are responsible for the choices that we make in life and no one else that god has given us a free will and we have the power to exercise that free will either to obey god or disobey him it's up to us But man is not an innocent victim inflicted with a disease of low self-esteem, which causes, and this is what they're telling people, it's a disease, and it's at the heart of all your problems, you have too too little self-esteem. The Bible says it's not a disease, it's a sin, which causes mankind to act wrongly, corruptly, and even violently. Man's problem is rebellion against God. That's always been his problem, ever since the Garden of Eden. And I'm, and I'm using all this as an introduction to this whole section. The man's problem is rebellion against God, fueled by pride and selfishness. And guys, he doesn't need years of psychotherapy and recovery. He needs to repent. He needs to repent of his sins, of his pride, of his rebellion. Get his life right with God and start being Christ-centered and esteeming others better than himself that's what god says we are to do c.s lewis said and i quote we're not just imperfect people who need growth but we're rebels who need to lay down our arms our weapons this world is not full of good people that god is treating badly it's full of bad people that god is treating kindly that's the correct view of everything and the real question mankind should contemplate, as we talked about Rabbi Harold Kushner's book, Runaway Bestseller, when bad things happen to good people, struck a chord with people. Because, yeah, yeah, I'm a good person. Why are bad stuff happening to me? It's God. He's out to get me. You know, I'm the victim. God's the bad guy. The real question that mankind should contemplate isn't why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? The Bible says there are no good people apart from Christ. There are no good people. There are no good people for bad things to happen to. That was the fallacy of his whole book. I don't care if it struck a chord or not. It was built on a faulty premise. And Paul is saying it right here. He's quoting the Old Testament. God said, look, there's none righteous. No, not one. Nobody does any good in my eyes apart from my son. Not even one person. Look, again. We should be asking ourselves, why do good things happen to bad people? When when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God could have left and gone to another part of the universe. Started all over again. He could have let us all die in our sins. He didn't do that because he's a good and loving God. Now guys, with that as background, we want to start looking at verses 10 to 18 of Romans 3 where Paul was quoting right out of the Old Testament. Again, uh, right out of the mouth of God, basically, condemning mankind. And this section tells us what God thinks of man. What God think, We know what we think of ourselves. Proverbs 20, verse 6, pretty much everybody proclaims each his own goodness. We, know, we get that. I want to hear what God has to say about me and about the human race apart from Christ, right? And far from singing our praises as wonderful creatures who are worthy of his love and therefore heaven bound, you know, good folks that just need to brag on themselves more because all our problems are low self-worth and self, low self-esteem. So you know, we need to, like, like one Christian speaker said, we quoted last week, got to stand in front of a mirror throughout the day and brag on yourself. You're good. You're great. You're just you're you're the most wonderful person. Just you gotta keep you gotta keep. It's called positive self-talk. We, we used to call it bragging, but they they redefined that. Positive self-talk. Stand in front of a mirror and just brag. You know, brag on yourself because you got to build up that low self-esteem. That's your problem. God doesn't feel that way. Instead, God brings a 14-count indictment against the human race for it's depravity. Again, this section constitutes the climax and closing arguments in Paul's case against mankind. Let's read verses, let's pick it up in verse 9 and read through verse 18. What then? Are we better than they? We Jews are not better than the Gentiles. Some think they are, but we're not. Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Uh, With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Paul just rattling off all these verses from God's word. Verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, guys, this 14 count indictment is directed at three primary areas of man's person his character, verses 10 to 12. His conversation, verses thirteen to fourteen, and his conduct, verses fifteen to eighteen. Let's look at his character. We'll just get this one started tonight. Uh, some of these will be a little longer than, or a little more involved than others. Some are pretty straightforward, and we won't spend a lot of time on them. So you're thinking fourteen indictments? We'll be here for two years. No, 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 and uh, probably not. All right, character. First area that Paul zeroes in on is man's character. Indictment number one, he quotes the beginning of verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, Paul starts out in verse 10 by quoting Psalm 14. That's what he's doing. He's quoting Psalm 14, which begins with the words, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, if you look up that verse, you don't have to do it now, but if you look it up in your Bibles, you'll notice that the words there is are in italics. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But the there is is in italics. And that means it was added. it's not in the original. It was added by the translators for reasons of clarity. They thought it would help you better understand what the passage was saying or the verse. Um, and sometimes that works. God bless them. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't add clarity uh, to the passage, but it only clouds and sometimes even confuses the meaning of what God is saying. The statement actually reads in the Hebrew, the fool has said in his heart, no God. This is probably more a statement of defiant rebellion than it is one of unbelief and atheism. Paul says there is none righteous. And here he's using the term righteous in the sense of a person being, listen, right with God. In other words, no human being apart from Jesus Christ is righteous or right with God. So the Bible says, a lot of people would argue with that especially if they believe in a different religion many people believe in the old uh, mantra that we're all taking different roads to get to the same place it doesn't matter how what road you take if you're a muslim a buddhist a christian or jewish doesn't matter as long as you're sincere it's all you're going to get there because all these religions are like spokes on a wheel they all converge to a central hub which is god well, I don't know, my Bible doesn't say that God counts sincerity for righteousness. It says he counts faith for righteousness, faith in the truth. But Paul here is using this idea of none righteous as uh, there are none right with God. There's only one way to God. Jesus said it, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes with the Father except through me. Oh, but I don't like that. It's too narrow. Well, I'm just glad there is a way. I don't have to have 15 or 20 or half a million ways. As long as there's one way, I'm happy. Just tell me how, what it is, and I'm, I'm walking that path. It's Jesus, of course, right? So there's, none right, there's nobody who's right with God, none good apart from Christ. And yet even the most evil people, on occasion, can do some good things. And this is what confuses fallen man into thinking he's basically good, because he can conjure up some good things from time to time. But guys, listen, very important now. Paul isn't speaking here about people doing right things from time to time outwardly. He's talking about man's character inwardly. He is saying that man's character at its core is corrupt because his nature has fallen from God's original creation, which was perfect, righteous, and just. That's how God made Adam and Eve perfect, righteous, and just. But that's not who we are now. Now we are products of the fall. Turn to Matthew 15. So in Matthew 15, Jesus Christ actually gives us a teaching on this. Because the disciples were um, being accused of not washing their hands in the ceremonial fashion before they ate. Not that they weren't washing their hands for cleanliness reasons, but the Pharisees had a whole big ritual of how you, how much water you had to take, how you had to pour it in your wrist and let it drip off your fingers, and they had to, it was a whole big deal. You know they weren't into that; they weren't doing it. Jesus never taught them to do it that way, and so they were charging these guys with uh, eating with defiled hands. So Jesus said in verse eighteen, "But those things which proceed." Out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. Not what goes into the mouth. doesn't matter what you've taken into your hands and eaten. That's not going to defile you. It's what comes out of the mouth. is what defiles people because that comes from the heart. Verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So you see it there? This is what Paul's talking about. And he could very well have in mind the words of Jesus because even though he wasn't a follower of Christ at that time during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus took him into the desert of Arabia and taught him for three years personally before he then started his public ministry. We just studied that a couple weeks ago in Galatians. So Jesus taught Paul, no doubt. Paul, it's not the outward that defiles It's what comes from the heart that defiles. So guys, the term righteousness as used here by Paul doesn't refer to doing but to being. It's a term that doesn't speak of what you do but of what you are. And please understand something. There are only two choices, two categories that every person falls into. Are you ready? Good or bad, righteous or unrighteous. That's it. Only two categories. Good, bad, bad. Righteous, unrighteous. And again, that's it. There aren't any in-between levels or categories for a person to fit themselves into. They're either perfect or imperfect, good or bad. Now guys, this is something that the Lord Jesus made abundantly clear in Matthew 19, if you turn there. And since we have talked about this one passage several times, and probably will again as we progress towards the end of chapter 3, I'm just going to touch on it. You can read the whole passage It's about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus looking for eternal life, okay? And uh, Matthew 19, I'll just read verses 16 and 17, first part of verse 17. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, and we know from the passage he was a rich young religious man, ruler of a synagogue. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. Guys, Jesus was either saying one of two things here. Either he was saying, Why are you calling me good? There is no one good but God. So don't call me good because I'm not God. Or, Why are you calling me good? There is no one good but God. Do you recognize that I am God? Of course, that one... We know that was the right one. But guys, if if Jesus is only one of many religious teachers in history that have come down the pike, then his words carry no more weight than the teachings of Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, or any other spiritual or religious teacher. You know, so many people want to acknowledge that Jesus was a good man, a moral man, and a great teacher, but they stop short of calling him God or believing that he's God in human form. But guys, believing that Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is absolutely essential for salvation. John 8.24, and here's one of those deals where they inserted a word to help you, but it didn't help. John 8.24, Jesus said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, you'll die and go to hell, if you do not believe that I am He, that He is in italics, can you just cross that out? Let me read it to you again. Because if it's in italics, it's not in the original. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins if you don't believe that I am. That makes a little difference, doesn't it? Of course, I am is is the name of God. Moses said, who shall I tell Pharaoh is sending me? You're asking me to go to Pharaoh? I don't even know your name. Tell him I am is sending you. But getting back to Jesus... Getting back to Jesus' response to this quote unquote good man in Matthew 19. Notice what the Lord tells him, which, guys, is critical to our understanding of this topic of good, good people going to heaven. Listen to what Jesus told him. You guys know this. We're just reviewing because Paul's touching on this very thing. Jesus said to him, No one is good but God. Notice Jesus didn't say that to this young, rich young ruler. No one is as good as God. He said, no one is good but God. You see, the Bible defines goodness as moral perfection. God is morally perfect. Now, most people, maybe, you, maybe you've heard them over the years. Most people will say, well, I know I'm not perfect. Oh, thank you that you acknowledge that. I actually had one guy tell me he was basically perfect. So that was a problem for him. Yeah, I never sinned, he said. Seriously. No, I, I never said. You never sin. Well, Either I have to take the sho- my shoes off because I'm on holy ground, <laughs> or you're mistaken. But anyways, that's a whole different story. But again, most people will say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I still think I'm good enough to get into heaven. But guys, God is telling us in his word that if you're not perfect, you're not good enough to get into heaven. And no human being is perfect, right? Let me read this again to you. Romans 3, verses 10 and 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not any. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Now we'll look at this in detail when we get to that section. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is sinless perfection. We'll talk about that when we get to Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23, and the wages of sin is death, eternal death, hell, the second death, lake of fire. And again, guys, this world is not full of good people that God is treating badly. It's full of bad people that God is treating kindly. As we've already mentioned, relative to other human beings, some people are obviously better behaved than others. If we're talking about outward actions, of course. But again, Paul is making the point, this is not about doing, it's about being. It's not what you do, it's what you are, is the idea. And guys, at our core, our our hearts are fallen. We are fallen sinners doomed to spend eternity in hell oh but i go to church i don't care i like candles that doesn't cut it i help out in the local food pantry i was out there thanksgiving morning you should have saw me wonderful god bless you you help people that was nice not gonna get you to heaven not gonna get you to heaven i'm not saying you shouldn't do it i'm just saying don't put your faith in that to get you to heaven not gonna do it i mean there are human beings that are obviously better behaved than others But that doesn't make them good in God's eyes, morally perfect. As Jesus was the only human being who was truly good because he's truly God. This is without a doubt the deadliest lie that the devil has ever fed the human race. What is it? That heaven is only for good people. In other words, heaven is only for people who have gone to church their whole lives, have lived virtuous moral lives. In other words, heaven is only for those who deserve to be there. Can I just stop and lay a bombshell on you? A bombshell revelation? Here it is. Heaven is only for good people. Heaven is only for good people. Heaven is a place only good people will be allowed to enter into. The problem is that most people define goodness from fallen man's perspective and not from holy God's perspective. Most people come to the conclusion that they are good people and therefore worthy of heaven. How? By looking at others in society to compare themselves to. And of course, we can always find somebody that's a little deeper in the mud than I am. It's not hard to find somebody that's, you know, living a little bit worse life than I am, or maybe a whole lot worse life than I am, right? When I taught this, I I said, you know, uh, you can always find people who are worse Than you are to compare yourself to thieves, rapists, murderers, other assorted miscreants, and malcontents. They're out there. Just watch the news. You can find these people and you can stand next to them. Look at my life compared to his or hers. You know, I look like Mother Teresa next to that guy. You know, shining examples of virtue and worthiness. But again, guys, the Bible defines goodness as moral perfection. And only God is morally perfect. In other words, a person who is not as good. Here's the thing. Here's the bad news if you're religious. To get into heaven, you have to be not good, perfect. Go go back and re-listen to that teaching. Top 10 lies of the devil. Number one, if you're religious and you're hoping that lighting enough candles and praying enough rosaries like I did as a Catholic, it's going to get you to heaven. Here's the bad news. To get to heaven, you you can't just be good, quote-unquote, whatever that means. You've got to be perfect, sinless. Well, I can't be that. I can't be sinless, so I guess it's impossible for me to get to heaven. Yeah, that's exactly right. The good news is God made it possible by sending his son to die in your place, living the perfect life, going to the cross and paying for your sins, my sins, so that now to get to heaven, I accept Jesus as my Savior. God puts me in Christ. Now he only sees Christ who is perfect, and I get to heaven not because I'm so good, but because Christ's perfect. A person who is not as good as God is not acceptable to God. In other words, they won't be allowed to live with him in heaven forever. You could check out John 16, verse 9 at your leisure. And Jesus said, when the Spirit of God comes, he's going to convict the world of three things. And one of them was of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. What does that mean? When Jesus ascended up into heaven and the Father accepted him, it was a declaration by God to all of us to say the only righteousness I will accept up into heaven is the righteousness of my son, which is perfect, sinless perfection. Jesus said in John 10, anyone who tries to get up into heaven, climb up any other way than through me, same as a thief and a robber. And I kind of got ahead of myself, but I have in my notes at this point, people will respond, well, how does God expect me to act as good as him? If you're not as good as God, you're not going to make it into heaven well that's unfair how does god expect me to be as good as he is i can't do that of course you can't of course you can't that's the whole point he's not asking you to do anything except believe in his son jesus did the work jesus lived the perfect life jesus paid for our sins i want to read to you a quote from pastor and evangelist greg lorry who said in a recent blog i read he said and I quote, conventional wisdom says that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. But here's something that may surprise you. There are going to be some quote-unquote good people who will not make it to heaven because no one is good enough to get there on their own. And there are some quote-unquote bad people who will be in heaven because they realize they were bad and they called out to God for forgiveness. And and this is a, a statement right here that I don't disagree with, but I have to kind of tweak a little bit. Heaven isn't for good people. Heaven is for forgiven people. Amen. But when you accept Christ and you're forgiven, God makes you a perfect person. You're a new creation in Christ. So we're both right. Okay? Heaven isn't for good people. Heaven is for forgiven people. Amen to that. But once you give your heart to Christ and are forgiven, he makes you a brand new creation. And God only sees Christ and he doesn't see you and me. He goes on. You must say, God, I'm sorry for my sin and turn from it. Your life can be changed by Jesus Christ. He is alive. He is standing at the door of your life and knocking. And he is saying that if you will hear his voice and open the door of your heart to him, he will come in. No matter what you have done, don't despair. God will forgive you of any sin you have committed if you will ask him for his forgiveness, end quote. Amen. Amen. Well, all right. I'm actually going to stop here because I wanted to get into the second indictment, and it isn't real long, but it's long enough where I'm not going to want to rush through it. So um, let's save that for next week with communion. We had a little less time than normal. That's fine. Communion is worth it. Um, but next week, God willing, we will take up the second indictment uh, that Paul gives, actually, that Paul quotes from the mouth of God against fallen mankind. We'll look at that uh, next time in our study. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us, Lord. You came down and paid the price, Lord Jesus. You loved fallen sinners. Again, you said, Nobody takes my life from me, I give it freely for the sheep. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask that you would give us grace to never think more highly of ourselves than we should. We are nothing. We deserve nothing, but you are everything. You are completely gracious, eternally loving and kind and have invited us to be your children through what Jesus did. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.